We just sang a song called King of Kings, and in that song it talks about the Spirit of God sort of lighting the flame that is uh, the New Testament people of God, which is the church. It says the church of Christ was born and the Spirit lit the flame. That song, I wanted to sing that right before we we went into our message today because that is the theme of the passage that we're going to look at this morning. It's the beginning of God's church and that he does that, begins that church by igniting the church with a flame. The song also says, the gospel truth of old shall not kneel, shall not faint. And so the image of that song is one of the images you see in our passage this morning, and that is that God begins an igniting flame, and it's sort of this picture of a flame that produces a global inferno that is his church. We are here today because of Pentecost, 2,000 years ago. We titled this uh, Walk Through the Book of Acts. If you're new with us, you haven't been here, we're walking through Acts together, and we've kind of titled it Forward. And so today you're going to see behind me, Forward with Fire. You know, as important as Jesus' life and death and resurrection were and are, without the Spirit's coming, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, there would be no gospel message, there would be no preaching, there'd be no mission, no conversions, no baptisms, no salvation, no worldwide Christian movement. But with the coming of the Spirit of God, we have all of those things. And so today, we oftentimes will talk about the Father and talk about the Son, but today we must talk about the Spirit of God because without Him, notice I say Him and not it, without Him, there is no gospel movement. Today we are here because the Spirit of God has empowered us, saved us, And so we want to appreciate his presence, understand the purpose of his presence, and be moved and mobilized forward by his presence. We're going to see this in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 this morning. Acts 2, 1 through 13. This is what God's word says through the author, Luke. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each, of, each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. <coughs> Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. One of the things, and because we haven't been in Acts in several weeks, we're resuming today. We took a little bit of a break to go to a couple places. Because we're resuming, just a quick word of recap or a reminder. A reminder that the book of Acts was written, as I said a moment ago, by Luke. And Luke was very thorough. He's a historian, physician. He cares about the details. And so he's writing this this, uh, this story, the, the, the story of the New Testament church, the gospel of Luke came before this. And so he has told the story of the life and ministry of Jesus, 
But now he's going to go to volume two, which is the life and the ministry of the apostles and the Holy Spirit's work in the apostles. And so I've said this intentionally. And just a reminder, the gospel of Luke was volume one. This, the book of Acts, is volume two. In fact, that's why, if you look back real quick at the beginning of the book of Acts, chapter one, verse one, Luke said, in the first book, O Theophilus, so he's writing it too. He says the same thing in, in the gospel of Luke. He says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The reason that is so important is because what Luke is saying is, in Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, we talked about what Jesus began to do. Now I'm going to tell you what he continued to do. And so you have this dividing line right between the middle. And you, you say, well, isn't Jesus ascending? Isn't he at the right hand of the Father? Exactly. Is it just because Jesus is absent in flesh does not mean that he is absent he is at work. And so while Jesus began his ministry in the Gospel of Luke, in the book of Acts, by the power of God and the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ Jesus, he is continuing all that he is doing and teaching. Act 2. In Acts 2. We've already seen in Acts that Jesus has been, or in Luke, rather, that Jesus has been resurrected. Beginning of Acts, we saw that Jesus spent 40 days teaching about the kingdom of God. He told his disciples to wait for the Spirit's coming. He said, you will receive power in Acts 1.8. You'll receive power. You'll be my witnesses to this region and that region and to every region. Then we saw his ascension and then the replacement of Judas Iscariot with Matthias. And now... As Jesus had instructed them, he said, wait, right? He said, wait for the power of the Spirit to descend on you. And now they're waiting, and today we come to the fulfillment of their waiting. Look with me at verse 1. By the way, we're going to do, I'm going to have a couple things on the screen towards at the end, okay? So maybe about halfway through. But first I want to walk through the first four verses, and then we'll get to that as we apply in verses 5 through 13. Verse 1 says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, look, I don't want to assume any information because I know that many of you, praise God, uh, sounds weird for me to say this, weren't raised in church is what I was going to say, as if that's a good thing that you weren't raised in church. That's not what I mean. I mean that it's great that God is causing us to reach people whether they were raised in church or not. I'm thankful that you're here and that you're part of God's church together today. But I don't want to assume that you know that word Pentecost or know what that means. And so let me just real quickly provide a, a little explanation. The word Pentecost is from the Greek word for 50th, like 5-0, 50th. It falls seven weeks and one day. It's 49 plus one. I know it's hard this morning on a Sunday morning, but that's 50, okay? It's 50 days after the Passover. And so Jesus is crucified and resurrected on Passover. Pentecost then is 50 days after that. Make sense? It's going to make sense in a moment if it didn't already. This is the second of the annual harvest festivals and feasts. So Jerusalem at the harvest festivals and feasts, there would be Passover, Pentecost, and then the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. I know I'm getting somewhere with this. Anytime they have one of these big feasts, there were three of them, the number of people in Jerusalem went from about 100,000 to about one million, okay? This is a big deal. It would be like maybe you went to college in a big football town, and so people, whenever it's football Saturday, a bunch of, like, the, the, the civilization just multiplies in that town. You have that, that map of Jerusalem that I asked you to, to grab? I don't know. We'll see if it's, yeah, there it is. So, okay, I, I know this isn't the best, and ignore the red lines for now, okay? But I, I just want you to see how jam-packed everything is in Jerusalem. Like, everything is on top of itself. And while it's all kind of squeezed in there like sardines, you have this big structure, the temple, that is clearly set apart as a very important and high place. But 
imagine this city already being full all the time with 100,000 people, and then all of a sudden, three times a year, it goes to a million people. I mean, it's, it's, it's a madhouse around the times of Passover, the time of Pentecost, and the time of the Feast of Booths. You can take that map down for now. Thank you. There's, no, there's another important word here. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived. Now, in our Bibles, in English, it may just say arrived. But the Greek word for arrived means fulfilled. It means this, this came at the end of great anticipation, meaning that this day was anticipated as Jesus promised in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, which I'm going to read. Look at verses 4 and 5 in chapter 1. It says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, there you go, but to wait for the promise of the Father, that which was anticipated, which he had said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The reason that's important is that they were anticipating and waiting, and so this Passages saying the day had finally come. <clears throat> the setting is that they are all together, which is what it says in verse 1. This is probably referring to the roughly 120 people from the upper room in the message that we looked at last time. So imagine a room full of about 120 followers of Jesus, and then things start to get a little weird. Look at verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Imagine that sound. You ever been around a tornado? It sounds like a train, right? A, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. I could focus on so many words here quickly, but the sound of wind. The word for wind there is the same word for spirit. They didn't have different words for wind and spirit and even breath. It's the word pneuma. And if you saw it in English, it would look like P-N-E-U-M-A. It looks like it's the beginning of the word pneumonia. Pneumonia is the breath disease, right? It's like the wind disease. And so the same word that we get that breath or wind from is the word for spirit. Why does that matter? Because what Luke is saying is there is this sound like a mighty rushing wind or breath. And where did it come from? From heaven. It's like God was breathing into this room, in other words. It came from heaven. God's breath filled the house. It says it filled the entire house. Verse 3 continues, it says, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now, fire, we could talk about this for a long time, but fire in the Old Testament is indicative of God's holy presence. One example of that is at Mount Sinai. By the way, when God's people went to Mount Sinai after they were freed from Egypt, that was at Pentecost. And so you have this sort of a, a hyperlink that's being connected from here to there. And I wish I could go into that at length, but we just can't for the sake of time. But at Mount Sinai, they could not even touch the mountain of Sinai because God's presence was there. He had descended on it in holy fire. And God said, you better not even come close to the mountain because it will consume you. Because God is so holy, and his fire is not something that people can be around. People are unfit for the fire of God to dwell on them or around them. He is an all-consuming fire. But here, he doesn't consume. He enters. He doesn't annihilate them. He rests on them. And we're going to see that he rests in them. Why is that important? Because it is a signal that something new is happening for thousands of years. It has been one way, and then suddenly in this room, it's going to be another way. Something new is happening. John the Baptist, which is mentioned, by the way, in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we just read a moment ago. John the Baptist had promised that Jesus' followers would be baptized with the Spirit 
And Jesus alludes to that. We just read that a second ago. But John the Baptist also said that they will be baptized with fire. I'm going to read that. Luke 3, verse 16. I think you'll see this on the screen behind me. It says, John answered them. John the Baptist answered them, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The Bible uses a metaphorical method of purification for fire. Fire is the thing that that purifies. It doesn't just burn things. It purifies things. That's what happens when you heat up metal, right? You heat metal to a certain temperature, and then you can clean it. You can wipe away the impurities. And we see this as a pattern in God's Word, that fire has a purifying effect. We even use that phrase, uh, trial by fire. What does that mean? that you come out on the other side of it better, right? It's a trial by fire that produces something better on the other side. The same way that water baptism points to a purifying work, the baptism of and the filling of the Holy Spirit is a purifying and setting apart work. He is called the Holy Spirit, isn't he? The Holy Spirit. You know holy means? It means set apart. He is the Holy Spirit. The reason I say that is that when you became a believer— And when you surrendered your life to Christ, you were baptized with the Spirit. You think, well, no one plunged me under this like metaphysical thing. That's not what it's saying. Baptized means to be overcome by something, to be engulfed in something or someone. And we are baptized in the Spirit when we become a believer and are surrendered to Christ. In other words, we're made pure. We're given a new heart. We are set apart. We are by God's power made new. And by the way, we're going to see this in a second, But the Bible does not teach that one must speak in tongues to authenticate this. The Bible nowhere teaches that one must speak in tongues in order to authenticate that one has truly been baptized in the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk a lot about that subject, well, some today, but I'll tell you that in a second. Don't you hate teasers like that? Come on, Pastor, what's up with that? But the question then is, why tongues of fire? Like, isn't that a weird thing to say? He could have just said that fire came in the room and yada, yada. This is tongues of fire. Why? Well, it appears that this is a visual manifestation of the Spirit's intent, what's going to happen next. And that is to equip believers with the ability to speak other languages, to speak other languages, which is what happens next in verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Notice it says, as the Spirit gave them utterance, meaning that this is not of man, but of God. It says they spoke in tongues. Now, the word tongues, it literally means the tongues of a nation or a people. It means a language. You see, they didn't have a term for language. They didn't have a word that meant language. And so their word, glossa, which this is the plural form of glossa, it means uh, a tongue. It's where we get the word glossary from, where you go to find words that you don't know the meaning of. Make sense? So what's happening is that this word glossa, tongue, is words that you don't know the meaning of, languages that you don't know. This is their word for languages. By the way, the word Pentecostal, it comes from Pentecost. But the idea of speaking in sort of an angelic, unintelligible utterance and gibberish is not what's happening here. It's, it's not what's happening here. And again, more on that in a bit. This is not what's happening here. And what, what I want to do is, here, now here's the thing I was teasing. This Wednesday, uh, we just finished Philippians, and so I'm going to talk about speaking in tongues on Wednesday. And so if you have questions about that and want to sort of learn more about that subject, come on Wednesday, because I'm going to spend all of that time talking about that, because today that, it, that deviates from the path of what the main thing in this passage is trying to teach. So 
I got a lot of things to say about speaking in tongues. Come on Wednesday and we can talk about that. But what's clear here is that this is not the tongues of unintelligible utterances and gibberish. And this is made extremely clear by the next verses. The big takeaway here is that the Spirit was giving them utterance and that God is doing something miraculous. But the question is, why is he doing this? Why is he doing this? Why is this the thing that God intends to do? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. And these are the two things that I'm going to leave with you today if you're taking notes. Number one is that the filling of the Spirit serves a purpose. <clears throat> the filling of the Spirit serves a purpose. The filling of the Spirit serves a purpose. Look at verses 5 and 6. <clears throat> it says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, but listen, from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. So we're not just talking about 120 now. We got multitudes of people coming together now. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Later in this narrative setting, Luke will mention 3,000 people. Oh, we're talking multitudes, okay? A whole bunch of people are around. There are not a lot of places in Jerusalem that could house 3,000 people. Throw that map back up there again for just a second. Where do you think is the only place that can maybe house 3,000 people in this city? The temple. That big square that looks empty. I'm going to suggest to you that probably what happens is that God is going to do this and make big waves at the temple, the symbol of the Old Testament people of God. And we're going to see this, this big effect here because Peter, we're going to look at this next week, he's going to preach from the Old Testament, and we're going to see God use the Messiah to do amazing things. I just want you to see that they're probably not still in the upper room at this point because multitudes, thousands are now going to gather around them, at least 3,000 so it's likely at the temple, during the feast week of Pentecost, Jews from all over the ancient world are coming. I gave you another map. Uh, it's all those names, those regions around. Do you have that one? I'm a maps guy. It's got Jerusalem, and let's do the, the next one. <clears throat> there you go. So Jerusalem, it has this like icon of fire there in the center. All those names you see in red and white around Jerusalem are the ones that we just read about in this passage. And I'm not going to go through the list again, but you see the list all around Jerusalem. The reason I want you to see this is because I think it helps to picture what it looks like for all these regions and all these nations to come together. They're coming together because they're Jewish people. They're God-fearers that live across the globe or across the world. And they're coming to Jerusalem because it is the feast day, the feast week of of Pentecost. And so as they come together, you got to understand that, yes, this is the Roman Empire, but it's even beyond that. I mean, you got people way far east, down in Africa even, that are coming together, made up of different cultures, different ethnicities, and yes, different languages. And while many of them probably spoke Aramaic or Greek or both, it's very clear here that more than just those things are represented. Look at verses 6 through 8 once again. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered. Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Notice, not in gibberish. They weren't speaking gibberish. They weren't speaking an unintelligible language. Everyone was hearing the gospel spoken to them in their language. Seven. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? That other map that you skipped over a second ago, or that we skipped over, put that one back up there. Galilee is a tiny place, and it's the top of that map. <clears throat> Galilee is very small. <clears throat> it's surrounding the Sea of Galilee, but Judea is down south. 
And Jerusalem is in Judea. It's a big city. But Galilee was, was nothing. They, I mean, they were nothing. They, it would be like saying New York City versus Meridian, Mississippi. Galilee was, it was nothing. And yet what's happening here is that God is using this group of people to do something amazing. These were men and women. This 120 were men and women from Jesus' hometown. They were not world travelers. They were blue-collar types, not international entrepreneurs. There was a geographical stereotype even. That when they spoke, Galileans spoke, they spoke poor Greek and they spoke rough Aramaic. They were not people that could speak the languages of all these regions around them. This is a miracle. This is a miracle. And God was doing something on purpose. Look at verses 9 through 11. It says, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of, of, of Libya, Belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes. Proselytes are Gentiles that were converted to, to Judaism. Cretans and Arabians. It says, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. I want you to understand the scope and the scale of the groups of people that we just mentioned. This was a vast miracle. Jewish people, but also Jewish sort of converts. You have people from all over coming together. God-fearers who knew the Old Testament but this is something far different that's happening here. In fact, it says in verse 8, how is it that we each hear each one of us in his own native language? The word for native language there is not glossa, which we talked about a minute ago. It's not native tongue. Here it changed, changes to dialectos. It's where we get the word dialect from. It's the local speech of their region. It was an accent. It's like how in the deep south, we, had, we all speak English, right, in the United States, but there's something different about living in the deep south, ain't there? Notice I said, ain't there? That's our dialect. We have a regional thing here. And so what's happening is that not only are they speaking different languages, they're speaking as if they grew up in Pamphylia. They're speaking as if they grew up in Egypt. And these are blue-collar boys and girls from Galilee. They don't know nothing about all that stuff. Don't you know that God, he could have just made the hearers able to understand one language. They could have just started speaking Greek, and miraculously they all could have just understood that. But God's goal is not just that they would be able to understand, but that they would see that something miraculous and missional had occurred. And that is that come to the temple, come to Jerusalem, was becoming the gospel going to Pamphylia and Egypt and Libya and Rome and Mesopotamia. No more is it going to be come to Pentecost. It's going to be the gospel is going to the nations. People were gathered at the temple, the symbol of the old covenant of God with Israel. By the way, the people who rejected the new covenant through the Messiah, and they were now witnessing the power of God on display in and through the followers of that Messiah that they had rejected. This is what Jesus meant when he said in his farewell discourse to his disciples in John 4, 12, I think I have that wrong. I think it's John 14, 12. Anyway, let me just read it. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Listen, and greater works than these will he do because, Jesus said, I am going to the Father. The greater works 
will happen because Jesus is going to the Father. In other words, the Spirit of God is in the business of taking the gospel of Jesus far and wide, and the tongues of Pentecost blew the minds of the onlookers and it ignited the flame of God's church. Why did he do this? The second part of verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Why did God do this? so that the gospel would go to the nations, and more specifically, that God's people would testify to the nations. It says mighty works. You know, the Spirit could have led them to say all kinds of things. The Spirit could have led them to utter uh, things about the Pharisees or things about Rome or the temple or to put down the doubters and announce that judgment is coming. But the Spirit led them to tell about the mighty works of God. And you better believe that those mighty works centered on one mighty work, and that is the reconciling, amazing, redeeming work of Jesus. This is the message that God wanted them to hear. And Peter is about to preach about it, what we'll look at next week. But I don't mind spoiling it this week. What he's about to say is that God will pour out his spirit and it will come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, Acts 2.21. That Jesus paid the wages of sin and God raised him up, disarming the sting of death because it was not possible for him to be held by the power of death. We're going to read that next week. God is at work and people are excited about it. Why did Pentecost happen? Why did the Spirit light the flame? Why is that fire still burning in the hearts of you who are in Christ today that we may testify and make much of Jesus? The same that is true 2,000 years ago. God is at work that we may testify and make much of the name of Jesus. Thank God that the Spirit is an internal aid to our own personal experience, that he ministers to us in our hurts, in our prayers, in our conflicts. But listen, to reduce his presence to that of a conflict counselor and encourager is to omit his purpose as an empowering missional instrument. And if you are not living a missional lifestyle, you are suppressing and omitting the very reason God gave you his Spirit. And I know that's convicting, because it's convicting for me, that if we are not valiantly living on mission, we are not doing the very thing that God equipped us with the Spirit to do. The first and greatest work of the Spirit is testifying to who God is, what He's done, what He's doing, and what He will do. And church, fellowship, we must be about the same thing. The Spirit is an instrument in the hands of God's messengers. You know, an instrument that isn't used for its purposes, it's pointless, it's wasted, it's squandered. It's like a a hammer that is never put to use as just a piece of metal that's collecting dust on a shelf. What What good is a hammer if it's never used to drive nails, right? Because it's an instrument. And if a hammer is is never put to use, it's just a piece of metal collecting dust on a shelf. It's designed for a purpose. The reason I say that is that you are not given the Spirit of God to put him on the shelf of your heart, but to be equipped by him for the task that God has set before you, whenever, wherever, whoever. In Acts, we see the Spirit of God, that he emboldens believers in their preaching in Acts 4. He affirms believers' teaching in Acts 6. He tells believers whom to talk to in Acts 8. 
He identifies who should do the talking in Acts 13. He leads believers in what to say in Acts 15. He tells believers where to go in Acts 16. Listen, please listen. The Spirit of God, He is the engine of gospel multiplication in the New Testament church. He must be the engine of gospel, gospel multiplication in fellowship church. Not good preachers, not good teachers, not good programs. The engine of gospel multiplication is whether or not we believe the power of the Spirit of God to bring that multiplication. A.W. Tozer said this. You'll see this on the screen behind me. If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do of, of what we, sorry, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. We have become so rudimentary and religious and it's pathetic how much we just rehearse our religion. And when I say the church, I don't mean fellowship necessarily, although that's probably true of our church in some ways. But there are people that stand and do what I do and don't preach the gospel. They could do what they do without the Spirit of God. You may come in here and you sing those songs, but you don't feel the heat of God's Spirit. You're just singing. You're not praising. You can do that without the Spirit of God. You can do good programs without the Spirit of God. You can do things real well without the Spirit of God. And a lot of churches do. This ain't going to be one of them. Can you commit to that with me? The only reason fellowship will be a healthy church is that if it is a gospel-centered, spirit-empowered church. And that's a commitment that each one of us has to make. Your staff cannot lift that burden, cannot carry that weight. That is a church body decision. Are we going to be spirit-empowered, spirit-led people or not? He's at work in this church. Is he at work in you? How are you testifying? I love that word, testify. It sounds old, doesn't it? It sounds like something you'd see in like an old film or something. Testify. Kind of makes me feel like I need to talk with a raspy voice. Testify. Was that raspy or was that? The reason I love that word is because it's rooted in the word testimony. You know what testimony? Testify. It brings to mind the courtroom. Again, I've said this before. It's someone taking the stand and, ask, and being asked questions. And you know what their, their role is? You know what somebody that's giving testimony is supposed to say? The truth. They're simply supposed to say what is true. You know what testifying means? It means for you to boldly and courageously and empowered by the Spirit of God to tell the truth. Ask God by His Spirit within you to make you bold to proclaim. To affirm in you what is God-honoring and reveal in you what isn't to prompt you to speak to specific people, to give you what to say and lead you when to say it. Listen, you are just as equipped to go and make waves for the gospel of Christ Jesus. You are just as equipped as these blue-collar Galilean roughnecks were. And some of you guys are even more so knowledgeable of God's word. Many of you know God's word far greater than these Galilean roughnecks did. And we're about to see that they make some waves because God, they trusted God to do something amazing. Do you? Not the power of the man and the woman, but the power of our God 
who lives within us. Guys, there is power in testimony. Right? There is power in testimony. I don't want to spoil this, but we're about to baptize the... I won't spoil it. Don't you hate when I do that? (laughs) Come on, man. I'll tell you this. When we're in that room before we come out, Brandon, Jessica, you can identify with this, and all you guys that have been baptized here, at least while I've been here the last three years, we'll be able to say this too. We pray because we're asking God's Spirit to, to work, okay? We'll pray something specific a lot of the time, every time to my, to my memory, and that is that God would use the testimony of his people to minister to his people. And for those that do not know Jesus, then I, I tell them, don't I, and I say this, the t- testimony is an evangelistic tool. And those that sit, step in those waters and read their story, that is usually a more impactful sermon than the one that you hear at this time slot. Because there's power in testimony. For some reason, it resonates within us. And guys, if that's true in the baptismal waters, I promise you, it's true outside of them. When God's people testify to what he's done in their hearts, it is contagious. It is infectious. It is overwhelming because it's like this person is telling the truth. They're excited that God has moved in them. Because when the people testify, the Spirit of God moves. It was true then, and it's true now. And by the way, I know reading the testimony is an unpopular method. It probably scares some of you guys to death. But the more that we've done it, the more sure I've become of it. Am I right about that? I don't ever want to go back. Because God is using the testimony of people to make waves among his people. That's why you get that hoorah feeling whenever you are in Christ and you say, come on now. And I just think, I'm supposed to follow that. Because there's power in testimony. And that's why some of you guys who have yet to surrender your life to Christ, when you hear that, you hear, that's me. I'm supposed to do that. I'm supposed to surrender. And maybe it's time for you to do that. The reason I love when they read their testimony. Listen, if, if you cannot do that before your church, who are your biggest cheerleaders, will you be able to do that before a lost and dying world? We're your cheerleaders, man. Let's praise God together. Start here. And for all of us, if you are not testifying, you are silencing and you are squandering the Holy Spirit in your heart. He is an instrument. Do not leave him on the shelf. Put him to work. And trust by faith that he will work if you are faithful. The second thing, much less time we'll spend on this one. The movement of the Spirit requires a response. This is just a way to wind things down, to be honest with you. The Spirit movement, the movement of the Spirit requires a response. You can call this the application. Because this is what's going to happen here. They're going to respond. Verse 12 says, And all were amazed and perplexed. That's two interesting words, right? They're amazed. They're also confused. They're perplexed. Saying to one another, what does this mean? We'll read that last verse in just a second. Amazed and perplexed. What's going to happen next is that Peter is going to take this as an opportunity to preach the gospel. 
Guys, when, when something amazing is happening, when people see something happening, people approach and they begin to ask questions. This is what's happening here. They hear a ruckus and they think, what is going on over there? This is true. Like, I remember back in like grade school, whenever there was like a fight, people like came out of nowhere, like popping out of trash cans and stuff. I want to see what's going on. I can't imagine now there's cell phones everywhere and people recording stuff. But that's, whenever there's a commotion, whenever there's something happening, isn't that true that like everybody kind of looks, somebody drops a dish in a restaurant, psh, what happens? Everybody kind of looks because there's a commotion. This is true of, of the power of, the God, of power of God moving, you know. The Spirit of God is moving. There's a commotion. And so people around are roused and they're thinking, what is going on over there? People approach and they begin to ask questions when they see something happening. But also, people are excited when they are part of God doing something. You know what I'm going to tell you? I'm going to tell you what's exciting about our church right now is that God's doing something. And the people out there are like, what's going on over there? I'm not looking at you guys in the back. I'm just, I'm just miming something, you know? Hey, Mason. They're like, what's going on over there? But at the same time, the people that are here, what's happening in you? I'm excited. And what happens is that it dominoes and it snowballs and it expands and it expands and expands because the watching world says, what's going on over there? And the people that are part of it saying, come and see. Something is happening here. The question is, are you ready to testify? The Bible calls this a priesthood. A priesthood is, is someone that comes between. We are a priesthood. We come between the gap between God's profound work and man's profound need. We're a priesthood of the gospel. We're a priesthood of the message that God, though he is far off and holy and distant in his holiness, saw us as separated sinners and he came and bridged the gap, the, the bad news of desperation in our sin and our shame, that Jesus stepped in to repair and reconcile the gap. That's the gospel. I, I was asked to do the devotion at uh, See You at the Pole uh, Wednesday at the elementary school. That was madness. And uh, right, Sadie? Yeah, I was there too. Um, I was asked to do that devotion, and it was great, man. But children have an attention span like as long as these flowers. Um, it's not long. These are inanimate objects here. That's what I'm trying to say. They just, psh. and so I was talking to them and really quickly, I just wanted to say the gospel is amazing. Our God is amazing. Jesus is amazing. He came to save you. Respond to that. Like that's what I was trying to say. But when I said gospel, I was like, raise your hand if you've ever heard the word. Cause you got to raise your hand stuff in order to get their attention. Raise your hand at this. Raise your hand if you're standing up. Raise your hand if you have a nose, if you have two ears, like that kind of thing. Raise your hand. They're just like, I'll raise my hand. I love doing that. So I said, raise your hand if you've ever heard that word gospel. And several of them popped their hands up. We're talking, there are probably, I don't know, 500 kids outside. I mean, it's crazy. There are hundreds of kids out there. And many of them put their hands up. And then I was like, you ever heard that word gospel? And they were like, yeah, we heard that word gospel. And I heard one little kid go, what's that? <laughs> and I was like, and I said this, I was like, oh, let me tell you. <laughs> like that. And I was just like, Caleb, relax, dude. You know? What do you say? He said, what's that mean? And I wanted to just... Lay it down, man. But again, tension span. I just. But it really reminded me of something. Is that the gospel is good news. And for a child and for a grown adult, I want you to know that the gospel is good news. That's what I told him. I said, I'll tell you something. It means good news. The bad news is that we are left in our sin and shame. And apart from Jesus, we have nothing. We have eternity apart from God. But God saw us in our desperation, and he stepped into that darkness, and he saved us. The Spirit lit the flame. Gospel truth of old. Won't kneel. 
It will never fade. There's a response there. They were amazed and they were perplexed. And Peter came in that time and he explained why it's good news. But verse 13, we can't ignore. But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. What's happening here is they're accusing them of being drunk. They had stubbornly, many of them had stubbornly shrugged off God clearly moving among them. And here's why I want to end with that. Please listen. When the Spirit is at work, you always make a choice to respond. Always. Always. There is no neutral response to the gospel. You may think, well, if I had been there, if I would seen that, I would have, you know, the miracle is never enough. You, you see this in Jesus' life and ministry. The miracle is never enough. It's never enough. Satan will always seek to deceive you and give you a reason to resist, a reason to say no, a reason to quench the Spirit, a reason to be stubborn, a reason to say, yeah, next time. You may see this baptismal filled up and you say, wow, that's powerful. I know that I need to respond to that. I know I need to respond to this gospel message. I know it's my time. But, and then Satan steps in and says, man, resist that. That's so embarrassing. You, you can say no. There's always next time next week, or you, you can keep it to yourself, quench the spirit, a reason to be stubborn, a reason to say next time, will you please be amazed, be perplexed, but no longer be perplexed. The gospel is good news to save, and Peter is going to get ready to say to whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, he will save you. God's power is moving on you. Will you listen to the lies of Satan and suppress the spirit, or will you listen to the truth of the spirit and say, Satan, get lost. You're responding whether you realize it or not. You either respond in faith and surrender, or you tell the spirit to hush He's moving on you. Will you receive him? Will you boldly say, I believe? Man, praise God that the Spirit is really moving at fellowship. And some of you are here this morning, and you know that God's been working in you and on you, and it's time to testify. And it may be time for you to be testifying in the form of baptism, or it may be time for you to testify in the form of saying, I surrender all. Whatever it is, will you stop suppressing the wrong guy? Tell Satan to be quiet and tell the Spirit to come on. Let's go. The gospel truth of old, it shall not kneel, it shall not faint. Will you respond to him today?